You are Locked On Pacers, your daily Indiana Pacers podcast, part of the Locked On Podcast Network, your team every day. Welcome into the Locked On Pacers podcast. My name is Adam Friedman. As always, I'm a staff writer at IndieCoinRose.com and one of the co-hosts of the Locked On Pacers podcast. On today's episode, you got me again, all solo, talk about today's Hawks game, and then I'm going to give one sizzling hot theory on Oladipo, comparing with a player we're all familiar with as Pacer fans, so stick around for that. But to start the podcast off, let's get to today's Hawks game, where the Pacers beat the Atlanta Hawks 129-121. to I'm going to give basically my three big takeaways from the game and it might you know dive into other points but we'll kind of start that as a general theme so theme number one and kind of the most important thing in this game to kind of look at and notice I thought was the Pacers poor defense if you can say that you know I tend to lean on the side the Hawks just hit some crazy contested three I mean not contested but like long range three point shots but the Pacers defense, which is number one in the NBA before tonight, defensive rating-wise at 103, giving up about 100 points per game, maybe 101 if you round up their 100.6 average, gave up 121 points to one of the five worst teams in the NBA. And I get it. The Hawks play at this you know, faster pace. They take a bunch of really, really seems like garbage threes that end up going in. And you factor that in a little bit. But that shouldn't factor to 121 points. Um Fortunately for the Pacers, their offense was able to sustain, and they were able to kind of carry that to a win. But it was worrying for sure to watch this Atlanta team that is a pretty bad team put up this many points. You know, they got off such a hot start, Atlanta did, and they kind of they took a big lead in the first quarter like every Pacer game. I'm shocked the Pacers go down by double digits in the first quarter. I'll be shocked by it, you know, next time at sarcasm if you guys can't tell. Uh, but then they got it going again in the second quarter. They had a 31 and a 36-point quarter in the first half, and they had a 33-point quarter in the fourth quarter. Like, this team had three really solid quarters, um, which is something to be afraid of in terms of can the Pacers, is the Pacers defense wearing thin or teams figuring it out? Is there flaws in it? Um, I don't know. You know, I think one big issue was Turner got into foul trouble, and that might be the key to, to kind of knocking down the Pacers' D is you get Turner into foul trouble, and then you play small ball with Sabonis out there, and you just... You bank on the big man draining threes. There are a couple of weird lineup moments where uh, Atlanta went super, super small. They put like a Vince Carter at center or uh, what's the guy I'm thinking of? Um, they played not, no, they played dead, dead minute center. They played, I know they played Vince Carter at center and they played Smel- Spellman at center. Some kind of weird kind of combination with one of those guys played center, a guard as a bonus returner. And with the Sabonis Turner both out there and that lineup was a little funky and didn't really work. And McMillan tried to ride it for a few minutes and then eventually he just pulled one for, um, Pull Turner from McDermott. But I think that might be the key to being the Pacers D and something to watch is if you just get Turner into foul trouble, does the defense, you know, not become like a complete show itself, but but drop off because the bonus isn't as good as defender as Turner and teams are starting to exploit that and realize that it's bonus has to be as good offensively to kind of match that. And he was tonight. He had an offensive, you know, explosion to match for his, I would say, not great defense, which is fine. But in the Knights response maybe goes four of 12 instead of seven of 12. Maybe they lose these type of games. Just a thought. You know, it's something to look towards as a trend as we head into the kind of the new year. That's kind of the big thing I'm looking for right now with this Pacers team is trends. What, how are guys going which way, the right way or the wrong way? And a good player to look for that. And kind of my second big point is Tyreek Evans, who was trending in this downward spiral of do we start 
Aaron Holiday, or do we not start? Do we play Aaron Holiday in Edmonds minutes? The Pacers do that, do that eventually. Is that going to happen at some point? And it seemed like this, that might be inevitable. The way Evans was playing, he was he's been pretty awful. He's been in, he was injured the last two games, but on the year, I mean, take out tonight, he was averaging basically ten points and two assists per game. Um, for a guy who's supposed to be sort of the the go-to bench guy, that assist number is way too low. He was shooting so in his previous ten games before tonight, he was shooting thirty-three point nine percent from the field. That is awful. Um, he was shooting 30, 35% from three overall in the season. I mean, these are just, you know, that number is not terrible, but his his field percentage was miserable. I mean, he was literally shooting three and a half of 10 out, 10 out of the field. That, that was his, that's how he was shooting, which was miserable. And he kept shooting like that. It seemed like, well, we're better off playing Holiday because you get Holiday's minutes, get him to develop into the point guard you think he could become for the future. And he's not worse than Tyreek. He might not be quite as good as him. He might be 80% of what he is. But that 20% is worth it because it develops him for the long term where Tyreek's clearly out the door at the end of the year. Well, Tyreek came out of back from injury and had a fantastic night. Um, he had 19 points. He was all over the place um, offensively. Uh, four for four from three. He seemed like he, uh, I think he started the game five of five, I want to say. Finished seven of nine. Uh, got the line once. I mean, he had five assists. I mean, he this might have been his best game as a pacer. And I don't know whether this is an aberration because it was a really awful Atlanta Hawks team and Tyreek has been hearing the rumblings of if he doesn't play well, he's going to lose his job to Aaron Holiday. Or whether this is a trend, and a trend where Holiday may, or where Edmonds is maybe going to work a little harder or try to fit in better or do things that just, you know, that highlight his good parts of his game and try to... Uh, not lose his job to Aaron Holiday. The question is, though, I mean, he took a couple of pull-up threes that went in. Like, you know, I feel like with Evans, he gets hot at one moment and then completely falls off. You know, he thinks he can remain that hot and falls off three games, next three games. And so can he sustain this? His big issue still has to be he's got to find a way to get easy points. You know, those step-back threes are not easy. and They're not always going to go down. Uh, he's got to convert his his two-point fiddles inside five feet, which has been just terrible this year. Like, he's got to figure out a way to get easy points or – create easy points for other people by either going into the lane and collapsing the D and kicking it out, something like that. He's got to do stuff like that where I, I think tonight, you know, when his three-point shot is falling, Tyreek Evans is one of the best players on this Pacers team. He might be even the second-best offensive threat behind Oladipo when he's at three-point shot is falling because he can just make any play with the ball in his hands. He can, he's really the only other guy in this team who can score without being set up by another player um, when he gets going. But the problem is this is such a a rare occasion. It kind of reminds me of Lance Stevenson where it's like Lance would have these games where, oh my God, he had, he shot seven of nine like Tyreek. He had, he hit a three. He was getting in the lane. He was getting fouled. He was making crazy passes. He was getting, he was stealing rebounds. Like he was doing all these great things, but he had one good game every 15 or every 20. So yeah, five times a year was worth, it was good. But the other 10 times it was, you know, the other 15, 10 to 15 games, it was terrible. It was just awful. And, it was abysmal, and it was so bad that like it made it painful to play him. Um, and so that's the thing I want to Tyreek. Now I don't think Tyreek is uh, his 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 like his worst night is near as bad as Lance's worst night. But the opportunity cost is what the problem is. That if when Tyreek plays bad, you think, oh wow, we could just play Holiday's minutes. Holiday would have put up some kind of points as him, and would have developed and maybe be building towards becoming the Pacers' future point guard. Now, the third point I want to make, and this is a, uh, the third thing I sort of noticed I thought was really interesting, is Thad Young continues to just play really well. Yeah, he didn't have a great, great game. 
uh, against the Wizards on Sunday. Um, he only had 11 points. I believe he was 5 of 12 in that game. But he comes back tonight 9 of 12 for 21 points. Um, you know, if you read my Andy Corey's article, he's become the king of kind of these tip-in shots. He had one of those big – he had a big tip-in shot late in the game. At the Hawks tonight, um, he is just – I don't know. He's playing incredible. I mean, if you look at his last now eleven games, he basically had maybe two bad games, and bad by that is just not twenty or not more than like fifteen points. So you take his last, I believe it's the last eleven games. You got a fourteen and seven, a twelve, twenty and nine, a fourteen and twelve, a twenty-five and eleven, twenty-six and ten, ten and six, thirteen and nine, eleven and five, twenty-one and one, ten and nine, and twenty-one and five. That's points and rebounds. Uh, if you couldn't figure that out. I mean, that's incredible. Shooting percentage-wise, it's 75% starting in Atlanta, 41 in Washington, 56, 44, 46, 55, 48, 64, 60, 53, 60. I mean, you know, no game in the 30%. That's fantastic. Nothing below 42% against Washington, which I thought maybe was his worst shooting game, but he still had nine rebounds in that game. Like, he's amazing. He's really, He's really been the most, you know, He's been the best version of Thad you could expect it when they traded for him two years ago. That's all I can say. Like that's he's the best version of that. He he's playing like the perfect role player that the Pacers dreamed of him being. He didn't have a great start to his year. I'm hoping this is just a continue he'll continue to do this and ride this kind of wave of fifteen to twenty point games almost through the rest of the season. Maybe, you know, the occasional ten point dip here and there, but you know, more twenty point games than less than ten point games the rest of the season. That would be a key for me. If he can do that, the Pacer team becomes really hard to beat because he's their third or fourth best player on nights. And when he's playing this well as their third option, you know, behind Oladipo or Bojan, even maybe turn on certain nights, he's behind him or Sabonis on other nights, he's behind him. When he's there, when he, he's their fourth option is playing this well. This team becomes really hard to beat because he can remain on the court and his defense is so vital to, you know, to stopping the other team's really small forward, which can be Giannis, or it could be Jimmy Butler, or it could be Gordon Hayward, or Jason Tatum, one of those two, or it can be Kawhi Leonard. Like, he is critical to stopping that player. And if he's scoring at this rate, or shooting at least as efficiently, when he's on the court as the fourth option, this team is dang near impossible to beat. Um, and you could you, you saw that against Philadelphia and Milwaukee, particularly where he played, where he had 25 and 26 points. He shot 64%, and yeah, he shot 48% against Philly, but he just... He was able to run the court and be the best def- one of the best defensive players, at least guarding the other team's best player usually, and was able to be an effective offensive player, which made him this combination of just like a two-way monster in those games, which made him actually probably the best player on the court in those games, better than Oladipo, better than Turner, because he could do on both sides he was dominating. And I don't expect him to have 20-point games against those good teams all the time, um, but when he is an offensive player of value, his defense is already extremely valuable, so it makes him, you know, this is really valuable, this really good player who really helped elevate the Pacers to an opportunity where they could, you know, easily beat a good team. And you know, they're gonna need this in the playoffs. To be honest, that's what they're gonna need. And I, I've been excited to watch it because I kind of been bleh on Thad really since the uh, the wrist injury two years ago. Was it now? I thought, okay, if we can't get a three point shot back, is he ever gonna be a good enough player? But he's figured out how he doesn't have to be the the perfect three-point shooter to still be a really effective offensive player because he can use his, I would call it old man game smarts, even though he's not even that old really. He's only 30 years old. Um, but he just knows where to be on the court. He knows how to cut cut at the right moment to get the tip in. He knows how to get those, those backdoor passes and um, at the rim. Like he just All these little things that are just very smart and come with experience, and he, he clearly is exploiting that, and it's awesome to watch because I think – like I said, when, I, when he's at his best and he's their fourth option at his best, offensively, their pitches are damn near impossible to beat. 
other like little notes. I mean, I guess to go kind of past my three things. Bones had a really good game. Uh, 19 and I believe nine. Let me look up the stat. Uh, 19 and eight. Sorry, uh, with a plus 24 on the court, which I mean, take that for it is. I mean, they made a huge run with him on the court. The bench in general. I mean, Corey Joseph was five of seven, 14. Um, Turner. I thought Turner once he got out of his foul trouble issue had a, played really well, and I continue to be impressed by Turner even in games where he plays bad. Where what I mean by that is he gets in foul trouble. He got three fouls. He still is an efficient player. What I mean by that is he had 11 points, six rebounds, and four assists tonight on five nine shooting. I mean. You know, in a game where Turner only played 26 minutes, spent most of the first half in foul trouble, you know, that took, took away a lot of his defensive ability when he came back in the second quarter where he couldn't quite protect the rim with the same uh, ferocity, ferocity that he usually does. I don't, I don't know if that's the word. Ferociousness? I don't know. Fierceness? Fierceness. I guess the same kind of fierce that he could that he normally can. Um, but he made some jumpers that were critical in the third quarter, and he used that to create open shots for other guys by drawing defenders. Like, you know... The telltale sign of a good player is when even on their bad nights, they have good nights. What I mean that is that even when they're like not at their best, not at their peak, Cody does this all the time where he's not at his peak, but he still has a really good night. Like tonight, 5 of 13, not great, but 16, 7, and 7. I mean, that's, you know, he's still getting everybody else involved and playing really well. And I thought Turner wasn't like super great for his bad night, but was good enough and was a player who I at least thought, you know, when he was used to be bad, it was miserable. I mean, it was like he'd come in, he couldn't couldn't get a shot off, couldn't make a bucket, kept offensive fouling left and right. I mean, when he was when he had a bad night, it was a bad night. I mean, a great example was that Boston one this year where he was just just bad, it was just bad. But now it's like he's maybe finding that groove where okay, I got into foul trouble, but I can still be somewhat efficient offensively, and I can pick my spots defensively. And I was impressed by that, and like I said, this team continues to impress me every game. Um, I mean, like, the only negative thought on them was the fact they gave 121 points, which is ridiculous, and they came to the Hawks because if they give 121 points to this bad a team, I wonder what good teams will do to them. I wonder if the Hawks have a, gave them a recipe to other teams, to the good teams, to how to beat them offensively. Because the Patriots have been such a dominant defense. I mean, they held Toronto, Milwaukee, and Philadelphia all under 100 points, or at least they held Milwaukee maybe to 101. Um, and so, you know, the Hawks hopefully didn't tonight, but might have given a formula to those teams of how to exploit the Pacers on the off on the defensive end and how to score, you know, 110 points against them. Just a thought. Uh, let's take a quick pause. And on the other side of the break, I'm going to give you my kind of crazy theory, I guess. All right, welcome back into the Locked On Pacers podcast. So this segment is, in, is inspired by a Caitlin Cooper tweet. Obviously, you all know Caitlin Cooper. If you listen to this podcast, she's been on a couple times. You can follow her at C2 underscore Cooper. Um, she tweeted out that Oladipo has been blev lately. And what she meant by that, I think, was he, I think she said it as he he has been less fitting in and more kind of trying to make his stamp on games and his shot choice and shot quality is iffy. And I think she has a pretty good point where Oladipo is no longer dominating games. He's yet to really dominate this year the way kind of I thought he would. And so I, I kind of got looking back at some of the history of Nate McMillan type superstars on his team. And so really look at McMillan, he's basically had three superstars, including Old Depot, on his teams. He had Brandon Roy when he's back in Portland. He had Paul George first two years and then Old Depot these two years. And so I wanted to look at it and I had this kind of crazy thought was is Oladipo, you know, really better than Paul George, or is he really a super level on Paul George? Or is he the product of a McMillan system with better clutch stats? So it's pretty obvious versus Paul George. 
basically he actually had worse shooting. But the difference between Paul George and Oladipo, um, numbers wise, last year they were very similar to Paul George's second year, second year under McMillan with the Pacers. Um, so like Paul George's 2016-17 season, he put up 23.7 and shot a 46-39, 90 split. I mean Oladipo stats were besides I think the free throw percentage was a little different. Oladipo stats were 23.1 with a 47-37 and 80 split shooting split. Um, but the difference was Oladipo's clutch stats. Where Oladipo's clutch stats versus Paul George, um, Oladipo this season, for example, is putting up like four and a half points in the clutch, shooting almost sixty percent. Um, last season, Oladipo's clutch stats were, I think, very similar. I mean, run it real fast on the NBA. It was three and a half points on forty-five percent shooting, where Paul George's clutch stats were four points on forty-seven percent shooting this season. So, um, on his second, sorry, not this, his second year with the Pacers, and so. Those are actually more similar than you think. Oladipo was a little better in, in the last like two minutes. If you really isolate it down from last five to last like two, you get Oladipo who's putting up like two points on forty percent shooting versus Paul George who was I believe was shooting a lot worse. Paul George was two point two points on forty five, so even actually a little better. So really, if you isolate Oladipo's clutch stats last year, wasn't that much different than Paul George? Now it felt different. You could tell. I mean, he made. More clutch shots, I feel like, than Paul George. I mean, you could just feel it. Uh, now I'm isolated down, down to a minute just to look. So Paul George, in the last minute, was 1.2 points on 30% shooting. Oladipo was 2.1 points on 40% shooting. So that was the difference. You know, Oladipo was much better in the last minute of games than Paul George was um, in the clutch category. But in terms of overall stats, you look at Brandon Royce, Paul George, and Oladipo, you get basically the same kind of stat line. A guy averaging between 20 and 23 points, um, shooting somewhere in the, you know, Roy was a little different because it was not in the same three-point era, but shooting somewhere in the in the high 40s on field goal percentage. So Roy shot 47 um, in 2016-17. Paul George shot 46 last year. Oladipo shot 47. You get a you know you get 33% from Roy from the three-point percentage. That was a little different than Paul George and Oladipo who were more efficient, but there's more emphasis on that type of game back then. So you give them that. Basically, guys who shot about 47% he put up 20 points. And so my thought was, and this is kind of a theory and. It's really for anybody to comment on because it's just a theory and it could be completely wrong. But the question is, is Old Depot a star or is he the byproduct of a really good system by Nate McMillan that develops players and pushes for a player to shine? What I mean by that is McMillan is famously known for his strong his hard practices where he pushes guys, where he really works on execution. And I think part of that is because in basketball, a lot of it is kind of chaos, where it's just constant movement. The coach can't really do anything. Things are just happening. So McMillan works them, works them, works them in practice so that when they get into those chaos moments, they know what to do, where to be at the right times. Offensively, defensively, they know what sets to run offensively. They know where to switch on defense and all the stuff like that. Now, part of this theory takes Oladipo having to actually elevate. Like Oladipo has to be in the shape he's in and has to be in the – mindset he has where he can be confident to take you know big shots when they matter stuff like that, which it's it's definitely part of Oladipo's development for sure but I, I wonder if if the role depot is playing right now is a byproduct of the McMillan system but as McMillan gets better players does does that star player sort of fade so McMillan's best season as a coach was the year he went 54 and 28, and he finished, I think, second in the Northwest Division, what the old ref says. Um, so if you look at that year, 
you see the stats become a little, look a little more like the Pacer team now. So you've got uh, Roy Evers, 22 points, Aldridge, 18, Blake, 11, Travis Outlaw, 12, and Rudy Fernandez, 10. Now, the Pacers don't quite have that number two elevated kind of player. But if you look at the stats this year, you're going to get Oladipo at about 20.2, Bogan at 16, um, the Domas at 14, Turner at 12, Fat at 11, and Tyreek at 10. So it's similar, right? It's it's once McMillan has enough of the other players, the superstar role doesn't have to be as dominant, and it it takes that superstar kind of taking a step back for a second, and realizing okay, I can rely on other people. Oliva might not have realized that yet. Right now, he's still averaging 17 shots per game. Last year, he put up 18. That's one down. But I bet if we looked at his if his uh, look at his numbers, he came back from the injury. His shots are. Are way down. I mean, they're his per game shots. Look them up real fast, but they they're gonna have to be down because other guys are kind of filling in that void. Taking back from injury, Oladipo has taken bumper bum fourteen point four shots per game, which is way down, only averaging seventeen points. And that you know, the games where you get word that he's forcing himself are the games where he takes nineteen shots. The games where he takes you know, I'm not sure he needs to take thirteen shots. And so you can kind of see as McMillan gets better players into his system, whatever it is. He doesn't quite need that superstar to put up the same amount of shots. I mean, Roy's shots, I think, went from, you know, in his second year to McMillan, he took almost 18, I think, or maybe his first year. So his first year, he was he was kind of behind. He took 16 shots in his first year, and that dropped to, I think, 15 or 14 in his third year. Sorry, second and third year now. Um, and you kind of could see that developing where other guys were stepping up, and it was sort of like, this, I mean, you could see the, the McMillan system of, like, all the five starters are really going to be our dominant players, and then we'll have one or two good bench guys. But ultimately, you know, ultimately we don't need our superstar to be the whatever 25-point-a-game guy. He can be an 18- to 20-point-game guy, and we can still be good if we have good other players. And I guess it's up to Oladipo to kind of embrace that, you know. Oliva's clutch stats are really what separates him from every other player in this league. It's not necessarily the fact that he puts up 25 points. It's the fact that in the last minute or two minutes, he can be relied on to drain a three-point shot, you know, relied on to go to the rim and close out games. And that's what he, that's what he has, I think, he's starting to realize. And I think sometimes he relapses back into this old mindset of, I have to be the guy this team came in without me scoring 30 points. Well, that's not true. Where he could score 16, but if he scores 10 of those in the last two minutes, they win every game. I mean, I, I mean I, I'm a firm believer in that. I mean, there'll be the occasional game, where he'll have to put up 30 from the win because everybody else will play bad. But they have so many guys who have been, who can have 20-point games that on any given night, one of Thad, Sabonis, Turner, even Evans, the way he played tonight, Bo, um, Bojan could have 20 points. And then you don't need to even have 20 points. You can have 15 to 20. But as long as he's being that clutch guy, he's fine. And he has to kind of settle into that role. And it's kind of a hard role to settle into because – He's been taking 17 shots a game. He's been the guy. He's been the guy they had to rely on. I mean, nobody else could shoot. But now that Turner's more confident with the ball, you know, they're getting better sets for Bojan. They're getting, you know, Thad is tipping in a ton of balls. He can set up some bonus one out and you ice low in the post. Like, he's got to sort of take a step back and realize, I don't need to be forcing things. If, I'm, if I don't feel like I'm having it tonight, you know, if I'm not really trying to get the most efficient shot, I need to give somebody else the more efficient shot. And that's what I think Caitlin's real point was, and I kind of, agree with her on a little bit. I mean, I'm probably speaking too much first, so I won't say that was her point, but that's, that's kind of what I took from what she said was Oladipo, is, instead of trying to fit into this team 
and take the efficient shot and take the open shot and pass up, you know, inefficient shots. He's just taking long twos. Or, yeah, he's got a good little sweet spot. But when he shoots 5 of 13, it's not a great night. And instead, he's got to realize on three or four of those shots, these are inefficient shots. I should kick it out to Sabonis, you know, or get the boy on the corner, or kick it down to Sabonis in the post and let those guys who are shooting better from those spots, you know, get the points. I should use the threat of me to create other guys. I think that's been Oladipo's next level is the point Oladipo, where he's not taking the shots, where his shots down are probably at 15, but he's using his threat of, like, a really high-efficiency score to set everybody else up. I think Oladipo, if he averaged 18 points but shot, like, 49, 40, and, I mean, you can 80, or 50, 40, 90, obviously. I don't know why I did that. If he shot 50, 40, 90, but 18 points, you know, and had 8 assists, 10 assists a game, that's the best version of him, and I don't know if he can get there because... It takes him realizing I don't need to be a 20-point guy, but it takes him taking kind of the Chris Paul mindset, I guess, or the Steve Nash mindset. And I don't know if he, you know, I don't know how you get a player in that mindset, especially after a guy has spent a year kind of being the dominant guy. I mean, even when you switch James Harden to point to point Hardman, everyone to call him, he still wanted to take, he still takes, you know, 18 shots a game because he's just that kind of player. I don't know how you do it at Oladipo, but if there's a way to do it, that's what the Pacers should do because that's how they kind of, make this next level, and I tell you bring up other guys, you know, I tell you turn Turner into maybe a superstar, I suppose, into a superstar, and you, you know, you elevate the role-playingness of Bojan and of Thad and McDermott and Carlton and stuff like that. So that's kind of what I see. I just I just am still wondering, you know, is Oladipo a byproduct of McMillan's system, which, you know, produces one kind of, 20 point a game dominant player and is there a next level to this system or is Oladipo just you know a really good NBA player that coincided with McMillan's system I guess is there a way to put it I want to know your thoughts I don't know if that really made any sense if it didn't make sense ignore that obviously but uh I think it made a little sense so feel free to uh, tweet at me at freemadam5 tweet the podcast at locked on pacers and that's all for his Locked On Pacers podcast. Have a great rest of your day.